This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Cindia Banu about her story, Tsunami Bride, which appears in issue 24 of The Common out this month. Cindia Banu is the author of the story collection Seeking Fortune Elsewhere. She is the recipient of an O. Henry Award, the Disquiet Literary Prize, and an Elizabeth George Foundation grant. Her fiction has appeared in Granta, New England Review, Glimmer Train, and elsewhere. A longtime newspaper reporter, she has worked for the New York Times and the Washington Post. She teaches at Oregon State University. Cindia Banu, thanks for joining us. Hi, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's, it's so nice to be here today. Uh, I realized I said Oregon State University. You say Oregon, probably? It is Oregon. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Obviously, I don't say it very often. <laughs> um, would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're calling from right now. Yeah, I'm in my um, home office in Corvallis, Oregon, where, where Oregon State is. I just moved here about four months ago from Austin, Texas. And um, it's beautiful here in Oregon. Um, we live in a valley. And when uh, I arrived in the summer, there were berries everywhere. And um, there are hazelnuts now. And we're close to the mountains and the coast. So it's a beautiful, quiet place to, to work and write. Oh, that sounds really nice. Um, I would love to start out with a reading from your story. Would you do the first few paragraphs for us? Yeah. Um, Tsunami Bride. As the parakeet green municipal bus pulled into Kudlor, Sai held his sign up as high as he could, his forehead burning from the morning sun. He did not want the reporter to miss him. The sign was flimsy, made of two pieces of printer paper taped together, but it was sufficient. He'd written Sarah, the New York Times, in thick capital letters with a black marker. He knew of only a handful of women doing serious journalism, mostly Barkadath copycats. His favorite female journalist was actually a character from the movie Gandhi. He had rented it when he was in college in Chennai and watched it alone. He was instantly smitten with the actress who played the Time magazine photographer from America, charmed by the way her short, wavy hair bounced as she squatted to the ground to take pictures of the Mahatma spinning cotton on his chakram. Sai had watched the movie in a single four-hour sitting, pausing only to boil water for Maggie noodles. 
He waited for the credits to roll so he could note the name of the actress, Candace Bergen. Ever since Sarah's call from America asking if he was available to help with the Tsunami Bride story, her voice ringing with enthusiasm, Sai had imagined driving through Cudalore and into the fishing villages with Candace Bergen sitting behind him on his Honda Activa. Just the night before, in a dream, when he and Candace rode over a particularly dusty bump in the road, she'd thrown her arms around him, rested her cheek against his back, and squealed. Candace smelled like a slice of freshly cut uti apple. Somehow, he was sure of this. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who, who may not have read your story yet, especially since it just came out, would you describe what the piece is about? Yeah, so this story, Tsunami Bride, takes place a year um, after the 2004 tsunami that devastated parts of South and Southeast Asia. And um, the story features an Indian-American reporter named Sarah, who who goes to South India to report on um, the tsunami's long-term effects on family units, where where many women died and and, uh, men were left as widowers. And it also um, features her translator and fixer, um, a newly married man named Sai, And the story um, is about the relationship that develops between the two of them during their short time together. Uh, Thank you. That was such a perfect summary. (laughs) Um, What what inspired you to start work on this story? Like, did it come from that new story? Can you tell us about how your first draft came together? Yeah. um, Well, so I wrote this story, the very first draft, early in the pandemic when I was um, stuck at home and and not able to travel. And I think I was just mining my memory. I was working in India in 2004, and I was at the scene of the tsunami um, in southern India shortly after it happened as a volunteer. So I... I went to some of these fishing villages that were that were devastated, um, and then I went back in 2007 and and looked at the aftermath as a reporter. Um, and the pandemic, I think, gave me a chance to go back to the scene in a new capacity as a as a fiction writer. Oh, that's so interesting. So, did you write about this as both a news story and a fiction story? I did, and and years ago, I I wrote about it as as a as a news story, and I also wrote a short essay about my time there as a volunteer. So, um, so I had I had come at it, um, from different angles, but but fiction, um, lets me kind of stay in a place and stay with characters for much longer than than journalism does, and and so. So uh, that that's what I try to do here. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's definitely layers to this story that I that would not make sense in, in a re- reported news story. Yeah, um, it, it's so layered and, and complicated. So um, because you're a journalist, and now that I know that that you did also kind of report this story, it's really interesting to me that that this story comes from Sai's point of view, her sort of driver and fixer. And not from Sarah, who's the who's the journalist. Um, was that a conscious choice, or, or was this always Sai's story? It wasn't always Sai's story, and um, it's not that often that I um, switch points of view. But but in this story, I did I did initially include 
Sarah's point of view, and and I think I included Sai's point of view. It felt a little bit crowded um, with with both of them in there, and maybe um, the story didn't feel quite tight enough. And so I ended up removing her, and um, and and Sarah is very much a a fictional character, although I am a reporter who. Um, has gone to India and reported from India, but um, she's a fictional character. But but I when I'm when I'm writing, it's important to me that I um, that I get as close to my characters as possible, and that I don't spare them. And I and I don't know um, if in her point of view, I was able to implicate her um, in the way that 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 is important to me to do in fiction. Um, and, and that may be because I'm a reporter as well. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but I, but I didn't quite get, get it right with her. Um, and so I kind of stick to Sai, although I try to show, try to show Sarah's perspective as well. Yeah. That's really interesting. I love hearing that it started out with, with both perspectives. That's, that's really fascinating. I do think Sarah is so interesting in this story. You know, she she's Indian, but she's not from India. She speaks the language, but not very well. So she sort of fits in and also doesn't really fit in. Um, and I, I like these scenes where she and Sai are, are talking over food at a restaurant, which it feels like this part of their culture that they can share, that they both sort of are familiar with the same foods. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how those scenes came together? Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, it's true um, what you're saying, and I think um, food food makes its way into many stories that I write. Um, I don't know that I do it consciously, but I am always trying to catch my characters um, during moments when they're when they're letting their guard down, um, and just like letting me um, get a glimpse of who they really are and. And that oftentimes, I think, happens during mealtimes when people are enjoying good food um, in the company of others. It, food is is so intoxicating, and I think it lets people, um, fictional and real, just just kind of relax a little bit uh, when they come together. And um, it's interesting that you mentioned that that food is is. Um, a part of Indian culture that Sai and Sarah share. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. Um, Sarah is the daughter of immigrants, and and with with all immigrants, um, many things from from the homeland get lost in the new generation. Um, language is one of those things, and we see sort of how Sarah has this lim- limited facility mm-hmm. with with Tamil. Um, an outlook too is one of those things that changes over the course of generations and style of dress. Um, there are many things, but but food is different, and there are some recipes that are passed down generation after generation. Um, and so so thinking about how Sai and Sarah are sharing these meals together um, is is interesting, and it's powerful to think about how how both of their ancestors might have had these the same dishes that they're sharing and and that their descendants too um, might one day eat them. There's a kind of commonality there, mm-hmm. as you point out, and, and it lets them connect maybe. 
Yeah, it seems like there's it's these moments where they sort of evaluate how the story is going, how the reporting is going, and then also sort of through that process, each of them might reveal certain things that they maybe hadn't planned to. Yeah, so I, I definitely feel what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things I love most about this story, when I first read it, um, you know, it came through our submission queue, and I just loved it. felt really subtle and nuanced in the way that Sai and Sarah interact and the way that Sai thinks about Sarah. I'm thinking about how you said you wanted to kind of implicate people, and I feel, you know, that we uh, – you know, we're rooting for Sai and, and and we sympathize with Sai and we like him, but he has these sort of, you know, negative thoughts about Sarah. He doesn't think she's very pretty. He's sort of judgmental about her clothes and her weight and things like that. Um, and then they have these misunderstandings between them. They make judgments about each other. Um, they try to read each other and try to understand each other, but they don't have enough familiarity to really do it. Um, and even once they learn about each other and they get closer, it doesn't like fix everything between them. It does, everything isn't sort of perfectly tied up. And I just think that that's beautifully handled. Can you talk about getting that relationship right? Or those sort of like um, dynamics of, of maybe being kind sometimes and unkind at other times? Yeah. Um, I think when I was exploring each of these characters, I was trying to be unsparing, um, and, but but also compassionate. And it, it, it takes me a really long time to get those nuances. And I don't even know um, for sure that that I I got it right. I don't I don't know that that's possible. And actually, some of the sort of final nuances, um, uh, I think you and I straightened out in the editing process. That is such an important piece of it too. Um, but but like like we just talked about, I played with point of view, um, and and I wanted to make sure that that I didn't spare either character. Um, I knew that each of them were arriving to the scene with these sort of preconceived notions about each other um, and preconceived notions about the worlds that each of them inhabit. And I, I, I really, what I really wanted, and I think what I, the one thing I did know from the very beginning is that I wanted these two people to look into each other's eyes for a moment um, and, and experience something. And um, that something is, is it's it's like a close relative to romantic love i think like a sort of mm -hmm. affection and admiration and i knew too that it was momentary that sarah was here um for a moment in time in Sai's life it's just sort of like a blink um that that will become a dream um but there was something meaningful i knew in in that moment for each of them, for Sai in particular, um, we know because it's it's from his point of view. Um, but it takes it takes it takes a quite a long time, I think, and quite a long time not um, not writing, but really um, kind of considering each character um, and their uh, what they're going through in in my head. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that it shows that. Yeah. Another thing I really love about this story is I feel like it raises a lot of complicated questions about relationships, uh, gender roles, attraction, ethics, journalism, all these things. And again, they aren't really answered or resolved in a concrete way. Things aren't tied up nicely. Um, and, that, and that feels so realistic to me. Um, I, I, you know, I love fiction that can make space to explore those things, but, but doesn't try to solve them. 
So I'm just wondering, like, was that intentional on your part? And were there other versions of the story that tied up certain things more neatly? Or, you know, like you said, was there like some, were there some versions where there was a little bit more of this feeling of, of almost like romance or, you know, like how did, how did those things balance out in different versions? Yeah, I think there were different versions. Um, I'm not sure if the other versions tied things up um, more neatly, but other versions felt didactic, maybe. Um, uh, maybe the ro- feeling of romantic love on Sai's part felt overdone, or Sai felt kind of overly and comically judgmental towards um, Sarah, Sarah and and Americans, or overly infatuated with her or where Sarah was too sincere in her reporting um, or too ruthless. I mean, she mm-hmm. she's a kind of um, struggling freelance reporter, but a pretty good one. And 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 so I needed to um, I needed to get to how she um, she really wants the story, um, although she's she's very compassionate. Um, she, she in the end wants the story, and and I think I I kind of added a couple lines at the very end while we were editing um, that suggest or indicate that Sai sees that that in the end he mm-hmm. sees that that she, Sarah is this this good reporter, um, a person he admires and respects, but, but she's taking the story. Um, so, so there were different versions that, that didn't feel authentic. Um, and it's, it's the process of revision. I think that, um, that gets me closer and closer and closer, but, but like I said, it's not, I, I'm not sure it's possible to get it just right. Um, but try to do the best that you can. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, you mentioned that line. I think, yeah, so much of those last stages of revision are just sort of looking and trying to make sure that everything you're trying to get across is actually on the page and, and that, you know, it's not just subtext. There's like enough of it there that the reader can really latch onto it, but, but not be too overt, not be too explainy, you know, that kind of thing. And I, yeah, I'm really, I think it, it definitely got to like that perfect balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in preparing for this podcast, I was reading about your story collection um, that came out this spring from Catapult. It's called yeah. Seeking Fortune Elsewhere. Um, congrats on that. It sounds amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, it definitely, like when I was reading about it, it definitely feels connected to the this story. There's these connections about immigrants and their families um, and sort of dealing with the repercussions of, of some people choosing to leave the country and some people choosing to stay. Um, what can you tell us about, about putting the story collection together, that sort of process or the decisions you had to make? Yeah. Um, well, I wrote the story collection um, over the course of three years while I was doing my MFA at the Michener Center in um, Austin. I, I don't think I realized that I had a collection on my hands until my advisor, um, Brett Anthony Johnston, said that that I might and I, I'm I'm grateful for that but I actually felt that I had written different versions of the same story over and over again and that <laughs> that maybe nobody would want to read them um and like you said they they do explore um some of the same things the stories kind of have this uh sense of longing and and they they look at family separation and and loss um, and highlight um, the stories of those who have left and and those who 
who are left behind. Um, I think until until he told me to to consider the possibility of a collection, I didn't realize that it's that um, what I thought was too much of the same is actually what made the stories a collection. That's that's sort mm-hmm. of what <laughs> binds the stories together, and and together. Um, uh, it, it it kind of leaves it has some impact. So, um, so that's how how the collection came together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds cohesive, which I think is such an important thing. Um, how does I'm just so curious about story collections. I definitely do not have a story collection in me. Um, how do you go about sort of um, putting it together, like in terms of order? I've heard people talk about realizing that their collection was missing one story or realizing their collection needed to drop a story, you know, like are there decisions like that that you had to make? Yeah, um, there were. Um, well, so the ordering, I there are four stories that are set in the U.S. and, and four stories that are set in India. And in putting mm-hmm. the collection together, I, I wanted to have this feeling of, of going back and forth um, between mm-hmm. the two places. But also uh, the first and last story um, kind of... Uh, touch both countries and so it felt it felt right to place those two stories at the beginning and the end they're kind of Mm -hmm. a little more vast and span multiple generations Um, the last Mm -hmm. story in particular um, covers covers a lot of time and several generations and touches both India and the United States so so it felt it felt good to kind of bookend the collection um, with those pieces. There was one story that we took out um, and, and it was in the story in the collection for a long time because it, it was linked to the first story in the collection. And so there was this attachment Mm -hmm. to it because um, the first story is about a grandmother and the story we took out was about her granddaughter. Uh, Mm -hmm. It just, it just didn't quite, it um, and and it needs it needs maybe just a little little more revision. That granddaughter is probably the character um, who who is most like me. She's sort of a young woman who's grown up in the United States, um, and 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 maybe because of that, I I didn't quite get it right. Like maybe I was conflating certain things with my own life. I'm not sure, but but we couldn't we couldn't quite get it right. And, and it was the right decision mm-hmm. to, to take it out in the end. Well, that's really interesting. Well, and I mean, it sounds like the collection also had this nice balance to it. And I feel like maybe you have to <laughs> lose a story to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, we did take a story out. And then we added a story in, um, oh, which, which features the same character, but she's, she's a, a decade older in, in, mm-hmm. in the story we added in. That's interesting. Um, I feel like yeah. we've already talked about your, your revision process for, for this story specifically. Um, but I, I would just love to hear, I mean, do you have any sort of a revision process that you rely on or strategies or methods that you rely on or, or other strategies that you give to your students in terms of when you're, when you're teaching writing? I think my revision process comes from my and my writing process, I think, comes from my training as a journalist. And and that's how I talk about revision when I talk to students. Um, it's 
I, I, when I am um, doing the initial work on a story, I think about it as um, being very present in that fictional world and essentially taking a lot of notes um, as if I'm out in the field um, doing <laughs> reporting work. And, and what takes me into the fictional world can be anything. It could be um, something I've seen or heard or an image I have, or in this case, it's a, it's a place that I had been to. So I kind of re-entered the scene. But from there, I kind of just uh, just kind of move around and write things down, write down things that um, I'm, I may be overhearing characters say or um, write down what I'm seeing, write down what characters are doing. And I kind of return to my desk with with all of those notes um, and so I have seen something in this fictional world and, and my goal is to share it with an audience. So, so looking at what I have, I kind of piece together that very first kind of messy draft of a story. Um, and then, and then I go back and read it and, and the, that kind of reading through it and reading through it again, gives me a sense of, of what the story might be, um, and then I'm kind of, I, I, I get a sense of what the story might be, but I want to present through revision the best version, the clearest version, too, of that story that mm -hmm. I can. And so so that process is, it involves kind of like dimming down, if you think about it as a kind of constellation that's emerging. It's a process of kind of dimming down certain certain places and and turning the volume up in other places brightening them um, and it may involve returning to that kind of imagined world and staying present a little longer in a certain scene gathering more information um, and coming back so so it's that kind of process of going back and forth I do try to get as much as possible before I sit down to write that first draft but then I tell students that they can it's it's their fictional world. They can re-enter it as many times as they'd like. Uh, and at some point, it's helpful to get feedback in the process of revision because someone can kind of look at what you're presenting and say, well, this is what I'm seeing, or there's a lot of emphasis in this one area. That's what's drawing my attention. Um, and the writer might not realize that until a reader says it. And, and if you don't want that there, you may need to kind of dim it down or or brighten it um, further. So that's kind of how I think about it um, as, as kind of a two-step process of gathering notes and then, um, oh, three-step, I guess, um, of gathering notes and then piecing together the first version and then revising it based on how it's presenting itself and, and how others are responding to it. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking, I my sister is a, is a journalist, um, and I've seen her, you know, sort of do that process with, with journalism, the gathering of the notes and then sort of, you know, synthesizing it into one thing and then, you know, working through another couple drafts to make it into something different. Um, yeah, it absolutely makes sense that that would work for fiction as well. <laughs> um, yeah, and I hope it maybe demystifies the process too. It, yeah. You know, it offers, it offers kind of um, uh, some concrete, ways to approach fiction which which at times it can feel feel mystical to to writers mm. yeah I sometimes still feel like it is sort of mystical and and some days that feels like a good thing 
and some days that feels like the really bad news <laughs> because if it's mis- mystical or magical or if, if you, one of those stories that just sort of, um, you know, comes to you from the muses, it's like, oh, I can't recreate that. I, I don't know how to make that happen again. It's, you know, it's, it needs yeah. to be a little more concrete than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also reporting has that same feeling too. I, I guess I'm not, it's not that the mystical and magical feeling isn't in there. I think that happens. Like once you're fully immersed in that world, it, it happens. Um, it, it's, it's that feeling of being so close to your characters and so immersed in that world. And then um, that, that feeling is there, but, but I think that there is a sort of practical, practical um, kind of tactics that, that we can use. Mm. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about your career as a journalist. Like I said, my sister is a journalist and Honestly, it seems to me like the hardest, most stressful job in the world. It's so much work and the deadlines are brutal. <laughs> and nowadays people, you know, the, lots of people like to um, take shots at journalists or the media and that kind of thing. So I just like, are you still working as a journalist regularly? Can you can you talk about what that part of your life is like? I, I stopped um, reporting while I was doing a MFA. I was completely mm-hmm. focused on fiction um, and, and not too long after that um, it was the pandemic. I had just started kind of dabbling in journalism again not and not returning to it full time. But the pandemic started and that brought me back to um, reporting in, in kind of a big way. I did a lot of uh, reporting during the pandemic on um, schools and, and kids and how mm-hmm. they were being affected um, in Texas and also in California. Um, and and I'm so glad that that I I return to journalism. It's not the, it's not my focus anymore. But um, it it definitely um, informs the way I write. It gives me access to people um, in a in a very particular way, a close access that I wouldn't otherwise have. Um, but that early training in in journalism, I think. Um, has been really helpful. I think that editors, I had great editors and they trained me to to cut to the heart of a story um, to include details, but also to curate them. You, you don't want too many and you only want the most telling. I think also um, I favor a kind of simplicity and clarity over over mm. flourishes. Um, I don't I don't like and I also don't need fancy language. I think the beauty of the right. story um, is is in the story and in, in what the <laughs> characters are saying and, and what we see in their lives. Although although um, you know beautiful language is beautiful and and, and artistry is great. Um, I think that I, I favor that that kind of simplicity. And and I do think that there are drawbacks that sometimes that instinct to be quick and efficient um, can can hurt my fiction. And um, I th- there there is a kind of artistry in in journalism. I, I think that we have a little bit of space to to be mm-hmm. playful Um and even a very short news story can break a reader's heart, but but journalism is different. It's a public service, and and the goal right. is to to inform and educate. Um, and and art art is different. It's it's also trying to get at a kind of a kind of truth. Um, 
but uh, but it but it allows for more time to to understand who a person is and also lets us look at the smaller, more mundane moments in a person's life. Um, mm. So, so I, I have to remember that. And if I think too much like a reporter, then, um, then, then my artistry, I think kind of suffers. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And, and I think also that my journalism, even as I continue to do journalism, it's benefited from, from fiction writing. I think that I am giving myself just a little more time. And also I've been gravitating towards writing slightly longer pieces. I've always been a a newspaper reporter, but, uh, but I've started doing a little bit more magazine work. Um, And and magazine stories do allow for a little more um, uh, artistry and playfulness and you, and you can linger a little bit more in, in a character's life. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I I was sort of going to ask all of those things that you already covered, which is sort of, how does your fiction shape your journalism? How does your journalism shape your fiction? But I mean, it sounds like they work together very well. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a relief, you know, the deadlines that you talked about, it's sometimes a relief to have a deadline and mm. know that your story will will come to an end and that 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 people will read it too we have no guarantees in fiction and and that can feel um stressful at times Mm. it's it's such a leap of faith but but it's a relief sometimes that i can i can do this other other kind of um other kind of writing yeah you know i think that that makes sense that you have sort of both to turn to. Yeah. So always our last question is just to sort of ask what you're working on now, what, what's next from you? Um, well, I am, I'm busy teaching. I'm working on a novel um, and I have a new set of stories. Uh, the story that you've, you've published as part of, of a new collection I'm working on. Um, okay. And I'm working on a little reporting too. The, the term is about to end here in Oregon. And so I hope to do a little bit of, of journalism over the holidays. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> a little of both. Yeah. Cindy, Cindy Abanu, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you and re- revisit this beautiful story again. Thank you, Emily. It's been, it's been great. So fun to talk to you. Listeners, you can read Cindy's story and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.